Chapter Twenty Eight of the Straighten Street Affair by William LeCue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter the Twenty Eighth. Love the Conqueror. The sudden revelation of the motive of the crime at Straighten Street staggered me. An hour later I saw the Count's lawyer, Signor Serrano, at his hotel in Russell Square, and from him learned much more regarding his late client's disposition of his property. The Count had apparently not been on very affectionate terms with his second wife, which accounted for him leaving the bulk of his fortune to his daughter Gabrielle, and, in the case of her death, to his partner de Gex, whom he had, of course, believed to be an honest man. The Count had died suddenly several months before his daughter. He had died from Orison, no doubt administered by someone in de Gex's pay. Then, almost before the will could be proved in the girl's favor, Signor Serrano learned that the girl herself had died in England. Since then he had been constantly occupied in straightening out his late client's affairs, and had now come to London for the first time in order to see Oswald de Gex, who had been constantly pressing for a settlement of the estate. He had seen him on the previous day when he appeared to be anxious that the affair should be cleared up. As he spoke of his late partner and of his daughter, tears came to his eyes, said the Spanish lawyer, speaking in French. Tears in the eyes of Oswald de Gex. I smiled at the thought. As for Rivero, he now became just as puzzled as I was myself. To me the motive of poor Gabriel Engledew's death was now quite apparent, and, moreover, it seemed that the reason de Gex required a forged death certificate was because he was not exactly certain whether by a post-mortem examination any trace of the drug could be found. He was not quite sure that one or the other of the great London pathologists might not identify Orson. With the Count's death on the continent he had taken the risk, well knowing that any ordinary doctor would pronounce death as being due to heart failure, as indeed it was. In London, however, he felt impelled to take precautions, and they were very elaborate and cunning ones, as I now knew. With the motive thus apparent, I felt myself on the verge of triumph. Yet without full knowledge of what occurred to my poor beloved on that night, how could I denounce the arch-criminal whose favors were now being sought by the great ones of the land? I was still in a quandary. I had established to my own satisfaction that Tito Moroni, the doctor of the Via Cavezzo, was the person who had distilled the orison, and who had no doubt introduced it to his wealthy but unscrupulous patient as a means of ridding himself of unwanted persons and enriching himself at the same time. Indeed, these facts were eventually proved up to the hilt. The motives for the deaths of the Conde de Chamontine, his daughter, and the philanthropic Dutch financier were all quite plain, but of course I said nothing to Rivero or to anybody else regarding my acceptance of a bribe to assist de Gex in the committal of a crime. I confess that on that night of horror I had no suspicion of foul play, for knowing the great financier as a person of very high standing, I naturally believed the story of his niece's sudden death. It was not until I found myself in the hospital at Saint-Mayot that I realized how cleverly I had been tricked. The drug had been administered to me in just sufficient dose to ensure that my brain should be affected and that any story I might afterwards tell should be discredited. Happily, however, I had now nearly completely recovered. I was the third person known to return to their normal senses after a dose of orosin, 
Would there be a fourth? Three further days went past, watchful, anxious days. De Gex was still at Straten Street, apparently quite unconscious that his hireling Sans was being kept under close surveillance. Another plot was in progress, without a doubt. Twice again had the elusive Spaniard, who was such a close friend of the notorious Despujol, visited Straten Street. It seemed, too, that de Gex, though anxious to return to Italy, still remained in London in the hope that Signor Serrano would arrange for the immediate transfer of the Count's property. One could scarcely take up a newspaper without finding that Oswald de Gex had attended this function or that, for he was apparently courting the favors of certain high political personages, no doubt with a view to a place in the next honors list. I smiled within myself as I read of all the great man's doings, of his vast financial interests, of his estates in England and Italy, and his assistance to the Ministry of Finance of Spain. Often, indeed, when at home, I discussed the situation with Hambledon, yet without the evidence of Gabriel Tennyson we could not act. Nearly a week had passed since my first meeting with the Spanish lawyer Serrano. Tito Moroni had apparently returned to Italy, for he had not been again to Straten Street. His last visit there had no doubt resulted in a quarrel with his wealthy client, whom I had suspicions he was blackmailing, for such would undoubtedly be the procedure of a blackguard of his caliber. More than once Rivero seemed anxious to secure the arrest of Matteo Sanz, but I constantly urged him to remain patient. He frequently begged me to reveal the true extent of my knowledge, but I always evaded his questions because I was not yet in a position to make a triumphant coup and avenge poor Gabrielle. Daily, hourly, indeed, was she in my thoughts. The letters I received from Lyon were the reverse of hopeful. The last one, indeed, reported that little or no progress had been noted during the week she had been under the care of the kindly old professor. One evening, on returning from the office, I found upon the hall-table a note in Mrs. Tennyson's well-known hand. It had been written from Long Ridge Road a few hours before, and in it she asked me to call that evening as they had returned from France. Naturally I lost no time in dashing over to Earl's Court, and with failing heart I entered the well-remembered artistic little drawing-room where Gabrielle herself, in a cool frock of cream-washing silk trimmed with narrow edgings of jade green, rose smiling to greet me. Her face was changed, for her countenance was now bright and vivacious, and her eyes merry and sparkling. The hard-set expression had gone, and she looked very alert and indescribably sweet. "'Well, Mr. Garfield,' she cried merrily, shaking my hand in warm welcome, so different from her usual apathetic attitude towards me. "'You see, we're back again. Mother has just gone round to Aunt Alice's in Cromwell Road, but she told me that you would call. "'Well, Miss Tennyson,' I exclaimed, holding her soft little hand in mine and looking into her eyes, "'I hope... I hope that you feel better. Indeed, you look quite changed. Yes, I can recollect everything now. All the past has come back to me, thanks to the old professor. He was so very kind and so patient that I can never thank him sufficiently. Or you, Mr. Garfield, for discovering him. I feel quite myself again. And it was all so sudden. At first the treatment gave me no relief, my brain seemed so muddled, but quite suddenly, one day, I found that I could recollect the past, all that happened to me on that terrible night, 
and in three days the professor announced that I had been quite recovered. My heart leaped with joy. She was cured, cured. Tell me all that you recollect regarding the events of that night, I urged breathlessly, as we sat together in the little London drawing-room. I looked at her countenance and realized now that it was full of life and animation, how very beautiful she was, how different from when I had seen her half dragged along the streets of Florence by her pretended friend Moroni. But justice was at hand, so I urged her to tell me exactly what happened. I give it to you, my reader, in my love's own words, just as she related it to me. Well, she said, drawing a long breath, one night about twelve months ago I was at a private dance at the house of a friend in Holland Park when I was introduced to a young married woman named Cullerton, the wife of a man on the stock exchange. I rather liked her, and as she invited me to a small dance which she gave a week later, we soon became friends. One day, while we were walking together in Bond Street, we met Mr. de Gex, the great financier, to whom she introduced me. His car was standing at the curb, so he took us back to tea at his house in Straton Street. While we were at tea, a tall, dark, Spanish-looking girl came in and was introduced to us as Gabrielle Engledew. As we sat at tea we laughed over the similarity of our names, and she told me that though her mother had been English she had lived all her life in Madrid and had been over here for the purpose of studying English. She had been staying with a family somewhere in Essex, but was now at a hotel in London, for she was returning to Madrid in a few days. I rather liked her, and as Mr. de Gex was charming to us both, I accepted his invitation to dine there a few days later. I did not tell mother about this, for I feared that, being rather old-fashioned, she might disapprove of my new friendships. We had a delightful dinner, and Mr. de Gex took us all three to the theatre afterwards and drove each of us home. I was the first, and he put me down at the corner of Earl's Court Road. On the night of November the 7th, at very short notice, Mr. de Gex had again invited Miss Engledew and myself through Mrs. Cullerton to dinner, for she was leaving for Madrid next day, her luggage having already been sent to the station cloakroom, she told me. We understood that Mr. and Mrs. Cullerton were also coming. We did not put on dinner dresses as Mr. de Gex said he intended to take us to a show at Olympia afterwards. I was, I know, foolish not to tell mother where I was going, but the reason for it I have already explained. When I arrived at Straton Street after my dancing lesson, Gabrielle Engledew was already there chatting with Mr. de Gex in the library. He told me that he had just received a telephone message from Mr. Cullerton saying that his wife had been taken rather unwell and therefore could not come. So we three sat down, the only other guest being a man I now recollect as one who afterwards proved my friend, Dr. Moroni. The meal was quite a merry one, for Mr. de Gex was quite a ladies' man when his wife was absent. At that time I understood that Mrs. de Gex was remaining in Italy. The meal was served by a man whom the great financier addressed as Horton, and just before coffee was brought in I recollect that Moroni left the table and went to the telephone. Then, on his return, the man Horton brought in the cups which were already filled. The man put down a cup before me, but de Gex, noticing that it was a little too full, politely exchanged his for mine. We were chatting, and Mr. de Gex had just said that it was about time we were off to Olympia when I sipped my coffee. I noticed that both Dr. Moroni and his host glanced at me curiously. The coffee tasted unusually sweet, 
and also it seemed to be slightly perfumed, I remember, almost like potpourri. I had just replaced the cup upon the table when I felt the most violent pain in my head and cried out. Miss Engledew was at my side in an instant, but I felt a sensation of giddiness, and next moment I knew nothing more. I remained silent for a few seconds, thinking deeply over her remarkable story. "'Then Miss Engledew was quite well at the time?' I asked. "'Quite. She sprang to my assistance.' "'Then you were taken ill before she became similarly affected?' "'Was she? I did not know that,' said my beloved in surprise. "'Yes, you were rendered unconscious by a drug which produced all the symptoms of death. But Miss Engledew was afterwards deliberately killed. Gabrielle stared at me as though she believed that I was bereft of my senses.' "'Was Gabrielle Engledew killed?' she gasped. "'Surely she was not!' "'She was,' I replied, and her body was afterwards cremated. My beloved gave vent to a shriek of horror, and what more natural. She now realized for the first time that she had been the victim of a clever and amazing plot. "'I recollect,' she said, "'that just at the moment of my sudden seizure I seemed to become fascinated by the gorgeous Spanish shawl which Gabriel Engledew had around her shoulders. It was a most beautifully embroidered silk shawl with long heavy fringe, and flowers worked in red, green, and gold upon a silk fabric. I had been admiring it all the time I sat at the table, but the colors seemed so dazzling as to bewilder me, to muddle my senses, red, green, and gold. How often had those words of hers puzzled me! Now I knew the truth. That magnificent Spanish shawl had stood out in her recollection as the last object she had seen before the deadly orison had done its work. Then I told her my own story. I was inveigled by a specious story into that house soon after you had sipped your coffee, perhaps even before, I said. The library was filled with a curious overpowering perfume of potpourri which overcame me, and then de Gex gave me a liqueur glass of brandy into which there had been introduced that most baneful of all drugs, orosin. It took immediate effect upon me, and a few moments later I was shown you lying upon the bed as though you were dead. Indeed, I believed you to be dead, and in the muddled state of my brain I actually gave a certificate with which that fiend de Gex had already provided himself. I declared that you had died of heart disease, a malady for which I had for some months treated you. But I knew nothing more until I was found on the road in Hampshire, she said. And I knew nothing more until I found myself in a hospital over at St. Malo, I went on. The drug orison in small doses destroys the memory. In large doses it produces an effect of death, and in still larger ones, like that administered to your friend the Anglo-Spanish girl Miss Engledew, causes instant death with no symptoms that the post-mortem can distinguish other than the natural cause of sudden heart failure. "'Was I given the drug deliberately?' asked Gabrielle, looking at me with her wonderful wide-open eyes, eyes so different from those dulled fixed ones which I had seen in the Duomo in old Florence when she had raised herself from praying in her half-demented state while the sinister Italian doctor stood behind her. "'Yes,' I said. De Gex passed his coffee-cup to you, smiling and without compunction, well knowing the effect it must have upon you, at the same time his intention being to kill your friend, Miss Engledew, by administering a stronger dose. 
this must have been accomplished by the injection of some wound or slight abrasion of the skin so that the drug should be introduced directly into the system and not by the mouth such a method would cause almost instant death but did gabrielle engledew die she asked excitedly yes she did and by her death de gex inherits the fortune of her father a rich spaniard the conde de chamontine she looked at me utterly bewildered and well the poor girl might be she now realized that she had been the victim of an amazing plot conceived by a master criminal who was at the same time immensely wealthy yet who cared nothing for human life so long as he amassed a colossal fortune all this mr garfield is most astounding she declared gazing with bewilderment around the room it seems incredible yes miss tennyson i know it does i replied but have patience and i will prove to you the true depth of the villainy of our mutual enemy and his well-paid sycophants then of a sudden i grasped her soft hand in mine and for a few seconds held it i looked steadily into her wonderful eyes and then slowly i raised her hand to my lips and kissed it gabrielle i whispered bending to her in deep earnest my triumph over your enemies is yours yours wait and i will reveal to you the whole facts facts more astounding than have ever been conceived in the most sensational pages of modern fiction she did not withdraw her hand and by her inert attitude i realized with indescribable joy that she really reciprocated my love i am not an emotional man neither am i an ideal lover i am only a mere man of the world hence perhaps the reader will forgive me if i fail to describe all the ecstasy of affection which i experienced at that moment i loved gabrielle tennyson with all my soul and i now knew that she loved me that surely was all sufficient with gabrielle i had been a fellow victim of a deeply laid and most foul plot that i had been purposely marked down with the aid of de gex's accomplice and sycophant gaston suzeau was made more than plain as i pursued my inquiries the plot by which de gex had hoped to secure his partner's fortune was indeed worthy the evil ever scheming mind of the mystery man of europe the man whose unseen influence made itself felt in every great political move on the continent the man whose hundred agents were ready in secret to do his bidding and perform any dirty work for payment after the conde de charmentine had been secretly attacked in the train on his way to paris and had died in the hospital at san sebastian oswald de gex suddenly found to his dismay that whatever claim he made upon his late partner's estate practically the whole would go to his daughter therefore while being a little apprehensive lest orison could be detected in a body after death by an expert pathologist he resorted to that elaborate and remarkable plot in order to exhibit to me what i presumed to be the body of gabrielle engledew and induce me to forge a death certificate in the name of a doctor whose surname was the same as my own the fact that he actually provided himself with a genuine sheet of the doctor's note-paper and that as i now learnt for the first time moroni was actually in the house when the drug was given to gabrielle and myself prior to the death of the chief victim showed the utter callousness of the crime indeed gabrielle engledew was actually witness of my beloved's mysterious seizure little dreaming that in a short hour she herself would fall victim to the cupidity of that relentless poisoner who by his crimes 
hoped to amass one of the most colossal fortunes in the world. I sat with Gabrielle discussing the amazing affair until darkness slowly fell. I told her of my own astounding adventures and my narrow escape from death in Madrid, to all of which she listened with breathless interest. Then, rising, I took her hand again, and with whispered words I pressed my lips to hers for the first time in a long but sacred caress. She sighed. I felt her quiver as I pressed her to me, and then, to my delight, I felt her sweet, warm lips cling at last affectionately to mine. End of chapter 28 Recording by Tom Weiss, tomsaudiobooks.com.